Hello and welcome to House Call with Dr. Diadamo. I am your host, Peter Diadamo, and I'm being ably assisted by my colleague, Dr. Jennifer Goto. Thanks for having me. This is episode four of our podcast series and is devoted to maintaining and optimizing your bone and structural health. Jen, I'm going to turn over the microphone to you to let the audience um, benefit from a, a little bit of background information in terms of bone, what it is, uh, and uh, an understanding of how it's uh, dynamically shaped. Uh, and then after that, we'll kind of go through some of the therapeutic options and uh, ways that people can uh, maximize their bone health going forward as they go through the various stages of life. All right, so we'll start with just a little bit about the anatomy of the bones themselves. So it's important to realize that the bones themselves are dynamic tissue, so they're constantly being broken down and rebuilt. And these processes are governed by two types of cells. So we have the osteoblast cells, which are responsible for building the bone, and then we have cells called the osteoclasts, which are responsible for breaking the bone down. And I think it's important for people to realize that they both have important functions. One isn't bad uh, just because it removes bone, and one isn't good just because it lays it down. Bone can be constantly uh, architecturally resculpted over the course of a person's life, depending upon the, the dynamics of their weight and gravity. Uh, so this is really a question of essentially the, the, the capacity of the body to, to sculpt bone. Uh, and although later on we'll discover that uh, disorders like osteoporosis are often accompanied by uh, more activity on the part of the osteoclast, in other words, the takeaway bone cells, uh, we really need both in order to be able to have the perfectly architecturally uh, sound and structurally uh, strong type of bone that, that keeps us healthy and protects us. Absolutely. So it's really just about maintaining the proper balance and making sure that the cells are all functioning in the appropriate manner. So when we look at the components that build the bone itself, we can divide these into inorganic and organic compounds. So the inorganic compounds are comprised of the salts of calcium and phosphate, and this is really what gives bone its compressive strength. And I think the most important salt that people might be aware of uh, is hydroxyapatite because that's sometimes marketed in, in calcium supplements, I believe. Right, in a lot of bone supplements. Then we have the organic compounds. So this is the collagen portion of the bone, and it's made of proteoglycans and things you're probably familiar with, such as hyaluronic acid, conjoined sulfate, and this is what gives bone its sheer strength. Right, tensile strength is the kind of strength that is the, the kind of stress that kind of goes sideways or, or has a, a shearing effect. And compressive strength is the, the strength that keeps the second floor of a building above the first floor of a building. Uh, and you need both. You need, you need to have the com uh, a combination of those two types of resistance. Um, and so in, in its ultimate wisdom, the body has structured a, a, a combination of, of the characteristics of different types of bone that does uh, this type of uh, protective effects in, in offsetting gravity and allowing us to use bones to uh, work as levers and, and, and allow us to do mechanical things like carry heavy things and, and even just move from point to point. Absolutely. There are two types of bone. So there's the cortical bone, which is the hard part of the bone, which is responsible for the smooth, solid, white appearance of bones. It's where all the minerals are. And then there's also the trabecular, or what we call spongy bone, which is the porous network inside of the bones. Additionally, then we also have the bone marrow, which is responsible for blood cell production. 
So that's the basic anatomy of bone. Um, so now we can start getting into some of the more common conditions that we see and some of the pathologies that we see. Dr. Diadamo mentioned osteoporosis, which is defined as a bone density of 2.5 standard deviations or less of the peak bone mass relative to others in your age and sex group. And then osteopenia is kind of a gray area where you don't have osteoporosis, but there's something funky about your bones. And uh, depending upon how uh, aggressively that is interpreted, it might dictate the use of certain types of bone mineralization drugs like Fosamax or not. A lot of this is mathematics. I mean, when you start to compare the bone of somebody who's postmenopausal and healthy uh, to somebody who's 36 years old and healthy, it's, it's, it's a comparison where the more elderly person's never going to win. And a lot of times this can be <clears throat> made into a pathology that uh, is not necessarily accurate. It's, we still haven't gotten to the point, I think, a lot of the times of looking at compar comparing age-appropriate groups to each other. Uh, and this was a big deal when it came time to using uh, estrogens uh, as drugs. They just were trying to retain bone to the level of somebody who was 40 or 50 years younger and giving them hormones at a level that would have been sufficient for somebody in that age bracket, but you can't give those levels of hormones to somebody who's got 70-year-old tissues that you can give them to somebody who's got 40-year-old tissue. So. There's a lot of controversies when it comes to basically the best way to handle uh, bone health, and one of the most interesting ones that I've always been amused by is the so-called bone hypothesis, uh, which is commonly um, promulgated by uh, dietitians, uh, amongst other people, who really should know better. But back when the normal state of affairs was to just kind of advocate I guess what you would call fat-phobic diets or protein-phobic diets. So the dietetic community used to use the excuse that high-protein diets could cause bone demineralization because uh, the protein would act to cause an, an acidity to build up in the body, and then the body would then counteract the acidity by leaching calcium from the bones in order to buffer the acidity with uh, minerals. Um, and this is still commonly advanced by dietitians, except that the uh, mechanism is probably correct, but the rationale is certainly wrong. Uh, it's been proven wrong in numerous studies, and it turns out that the body doesn't really take calcium off the bone in order to change the acidity as a result of protein intake, but rather it, it, it triggers other mechanisms that simply increase the absorption of calcium from the digestive tract. So I think the body's probably a little bit smarter at how to regulate acidity from a high-protein diet than most dietitians would give it credit for. But there's also an important blood type-specific component here that really plays a really strong role with regard to how effective the whole bone hypothesis is and literally throws it into a cocked hat, if you ask me. It has to do with an enzyme called intestinal alkaline phosphatase. And uh, it's got a long name, so we sometimes just abbreviated IAP. Uh, it's one of a background of certain enzymes known as phosphatases. For instance, uh, when somebody says, well, my liver enzymes were elevated, which was a sign that concerned my doctor that I might have something wrong with my liver, that's uh, the liver fraction of the phosphatase. And then there's another one that comes out in heart muscle. And then here's one that comes out in your digestive tract. So it's known as intestinal alkaline phosphatase. It's an interesting enzyme because around the time when you were 14 weeks old inside of your mother, 
um, it was the greatest enzyme by volume in the fetus and it has a tremendous effect at that time because the fetus is going through a developmental process that involves having to produce a intact digestive tract in terms of the absorption and all the other things that are involved. And so it turns out that long past the point when we're in a fetal situation, uh, intestinal alkaline phosphatase still functions as a big healing uh, component with regard to the intestinal lining. But from a uh, blood type perspective, it actually has a whole lot more interesting associations because since the 1950s, it was known that the level of this enzyme varied significantly by the blood type and secretor status of the person who was being analyzed. And originally, they were looking at this exclusively with regard to one of the major functions of this intestinal alkaline phosphatase, which was to split cholesterol. And so the idea that the uh, high levels of intestinal alkaline phosphatase, which, by the way, are found in blood group O compared to the other blood types, might explain why perhaps they were better suited to a high-protein diet with regard to uh, the cardiovascular consequences, which are uh, sometimes thought to be the result of increasing too much fat and protein in the diet. The theory being that um, since uh, alkaline phosphatase was higher in type O and was responsible for splitting cholesterol, that uh, maybe this conveyed a little bit of protective benefit when it came to type O eating a higher protein diet. And that's probably true to this day because it does partially explain why uh, type O has lower rates of most of the common forms of heart disease. But one of the major effects in terms of um, intestinal alkaline phosphatase as well is that it increases the absorption of calcium in the gut. And so consequently, here's another particular piece of evidence that kind of throws the whole uh, bone hypothesis uh, sort of into disarray, uh, but falls directly in line with the observation that in many instances the increase in acidity is offset by improvements in absorption. So here's blood type O with a better level of an enzyme that's keyed into the absorption of calcium and the breakdown of fat that's triggered by the intake of fat and protein. So in essence, these people have the ability, uh, perhaps better than the other blood types for sure, of being able to benefit not only in terms of uh, the benefits of protein in a general sense, but in type O, increasing protein actually results in the activation of an enzyme that helps split cholesterol and improves the absorption of calcium. And this also shows some uh, significance with regard to the secretor status because it turns out that uh, if you add secretor status to the calculation, non-secretors have higher levels of intestinal alkaline phosphatase than secretors. So if we were going to make a whole spectrum, we would say that the O secretor is the highest in terms of alkaline phosphatase, and the A non-secretor is the lowest. And this has actually been shown by, by uh, some research, and there's actually evidence that the unfortunate type A person may be producing a blood type antigen, which actually may actually inactivate intestinal alkaline phosphatase directly. So. In, in a way, it does go a long way to explain why perhaps if the type A eats the standard American high-fat diet, uh, they're going to have more consequences with regard to cardiovascular disease because they don't have the enzymatic machinery to break these things down and profit by the consumption of those foods, by the activation of enzymes like uh, alkaline phosphatase. 
You know, I, there's another area I also wanted to talk about a little bit, which is um, repairing after your, your bone breaks. Uh, and it's really only something that's a kind of, um, uh, I would suppose, a uh, observation that I've made over the years that I thought I would share with the audience. And uh, it had to do with the fact that uh, a while back I had broken uh, an ankle uh, doing martial arts and doing a spin kick, which resulted in me collapsing into the floor and landing on top of my ankle. Um, and then we were going to um, have to do all the typical things one does with that situation. They were looking at actually pinning the bone in there and everything. And I said, uh, well, give me some time and let me see what I'm going to do. I'll come back in a couple of weeks and we'll see if that's the, 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 the state of affairs. And if that's so, we'll go ahead and do it. So they slapped on one of these uh, air kind of splint thingy things and I wore that for a while. Then I did some research and it came to the conclusion that there was a real need for vitamin C in what are known as branch chain amino acids, uh, leucine, valine, and isoleucine. These are the three branch chain amino acids. Because research was published that showed that these were the things that the demand was the greatest for in bone that was repairing itself from a break. So I thought to myself, what is the... Uh, what, what, what is the problem in just giving a large amounts of things which the evidence seems to suggest is in high demand in, in rapidly healing bone? So I took this and I went back and saw the, uh, uh, the orthopedic uh, doctor at that point and he was shocked. He said, you know, you had, your, your ankle had healed like a 20-year-old, he said. Uh, and so I gave this to some other people and it does seem to be effective so that after traumatic injuries I, I do recommend that this is something that people consider as a sort of a post uh, recovery type of uh, routine. Now there's lots of supplements as well that can be indicated for proper bone health uh, and I think Dr. Jen has a few that she wants to talk to you about here. Absolutely, so probably the most common that we hear about would be vitamin D. So we know that vitamin D aids in the absorption of calcium from the gut, and then we have vitamin K, which helps the movement of the calcium into bone formation. Aside from the vitamins, we have other minerals that are also required. So we have things like manganese and magnesium and boron. Manganese is important for um, supporting the ligamentous structure around the bones themselves. And so it's particularly in spinal bone where we see um, the discs taking up a lot of the compressive force that occurs in the spine, manganese can be particularly helpful because it helps to strengthen the ligamentous structure which will help to hold the bones in place so that the discs don't come under so much stress. Vitamin D is an interesting, well I mean it barely qualifies as a vitamin, it's closer to a hormone especially when it turns into its active role and if you look at it from a genomic standpoint it's a powerhouse, it turns on over 300 plus genes so it's got a lot of roles in, 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 in immunological and uh, gene expression that are completely independent of its role as a vitamin. And I think uh, one of the things we uh, um, don't really realize is that there's an interplay between vitamin D and the parathyroid as, as well, which is, a, is again a major calcium regulator. Vitamin K, its, it's major benefit is I think it mostly prevents calcium from going in the wrong places. Uh, we want it to go on the bone, but not necessarily into your arteries. And uh, lately the general tendency has been for people to have a kind of a mix of uh, D3 and K2. Um, and it's associated, lo lower levels of vitamin K are associated with uh, 
uh, well associated with osteopenia, osteoporosis. Uh, one of the other ones that generally tends to get under-recognized is magnesium. Uh, I think a lot of people uh, don't realize it, but the vast majority of us are clinically or subclinically magnesium deficient for the simple reason that the dietary levels of magnesium in our foods has been dropping uh, pretty much since the beginning of the 20th century, you know, from when we went into large-scale um, agricultural, industrial agricultural behavior with modern fertilizers and things. Uh, and also to the fact that, you know, if we've moved more towards a, a grain-based diet and away from a live food diet, which tends to provide the vast majority of our magnesium. Uh, and again, the magnesium, it would be hard to just talk about it in, as its role in a, in a bone regulatory sense because magnesium is, a, is what's known as a catalyst or a cofactor in most of the enzymatic reactions that produce energy in your body. So anything having to do with metabolism of carbohydrates and, and, and the production of energy from their, their, uh, their metabolism is magnesium dependent. Um, but also too, uh, magnesium deficiency tends to mess up the balance between the bone-laying osteoblasts and the bone-munching osteoclasts. So when you've got a subclinical level of magnesium, uh, that delicate balance tends to become a little bit more of an oscillating type of thing rather than a um, a very delicate uh, turning of the of the rudder. And again, this is like homeostasis. Everybody thinks of magnesium, and all they think about is you know probably going to the bathroom because most people take magnesium as a sort of a gentle laxative. But there are so many forms of magnesium that can be used without having big effects on uh, on uh, the uh, function of your digestive tract. Uh, and as Dr. Jen said, manganese. Uh, has a, a significant role in my uh, understanding because it strengthens the uh, ligaments that are aligned along the sides of the spinal column when are actually doing the majority of the girdling of the spine. And when they become lax, it typically is associated with a lack of magnesium, uh, a manganese rather, uh, and ultimately uh, it forces the, the intervertebral disc to function like uh, a structural component when really they were designed to function as a shock absorber. So it's like your car. If, if your chassis is uh, not supporting itself, then you have to rely on the shock absorbers to hold the car up. That's not going to be a formula for a whole lot of uh, long-term success. You know, one of the things that comes up a lot on the internet, Jenna, these bone broths, I wonder if you could take a moment and, and just kind of give us a little bit of a background on that and what, what you think about the benefit of making these bone broths if, if indeed they are, they are beneficial. Sure, yes. You can make bone broths by boiling the bones of pretty much any animal. Um, mainly we see them produced from chicken or turkey or beef, sometimes lamb. And the benefits are that you get a lot, all of the minerals being pulled out of the bones. And so you get this high concentration of minerals that's easily absorbed. It's also really beneficial for people who don't have great digestion, um, so maybe aren't getting enough from their diet. Um, but you do have to be careful with the sources of the bones. You just want to make sure that you're getting bones from organic, grass-fed animals. You want to be careful that they've been checked for heavy metals and things like that. And lead is a particular uh, issue when it comes to uh, anything having to do with bone because lead and calcium tend to be very similar 
electrostatically when it comes to their uh, molecular characteristics. And so anywhere, you know, you have lead, it's going to uh, get itself involved in calcium metabolism. So, yes, you have to be very careful about the sources. And then there's a few little things I've noticed. It's very high in glutamate, and some people say that if you have, like, neurological issues, you should avoid large amounts of glutamate in your diet. But one of the benefits is that it's a very... Um, labor-intensive but inexpensive way of getting glucosamine and chondroitin, which are the two uh, bone-building nutraceuticals that many people consume as, as uh, supplements. You know, I mean, I've had, I've had bone broth from a variety of different sources. Um, some taste better than others, I'll say that, and some are very strong. Uh, but um, some people swear by them, and I think the only things we need to be aware of are the source materials and um, there's uh, some theories that you should put a little acid in there, like from lemon juice or something, or some people use vinegar to sort of help extract out the things while the broth is being made. But it turns out that actually that might increase the glutamate content, which perhaps maybe is something that uh, we might not necessarily want to recommend. You can just boil these things to death and you'll get everything out of them that's going to come out of them, that's for sure. Now basically I'm going to talk a little bit, and Dr. Jen's going to uh, work through this with us as well on some of the typical botanical things I've used over the years that we've used in the Center of Excellence or at the um, house call. Uh, one of them is just the unfortunately named horny goatweed, uh, which apparently has marketed mostly as a, I don't know, a male enhancement aphrodisiac, I suppose. It's supposed to be a of benefit in, our, I think, erectile dysfunction. I've never been sure if the horny and horny goat we had to do with the fact that it had horns or the fact that it was a horny goat, in which case perhaps maybe that was an over-extrapolation with regard to what this herb can do. But epimedium, which I routinely mispronounce, I think I might have just mispronounced it again, uh, contains a, an important ingredient called icarin, I-C-A-A-R-I-N, and uh, Akarin has a huge number of studies in the literature uh, that are involved in maintaining bone health, uh, largely because of the interaction between Akarin and epimedium as the uh, source of Akarin with what are known as bone morphogenic proteins, which are um, genes that are involved in the activation of the whole uh, bone growth uh, mechanisms on a genomic level. Uh, and then basically the studies show that it, uh, in combination with calcium, it decreases bone loss in the spine and hip in women uh, compared to women who were just taking calcium alone. And this is uh, menopausal women. So what they did is they studied whether or not taking calcium uh, decreased the rate of bone loss. And then they compared that to women who were taking calcium and taking epimedium, and they found that the combination of the two was better than the calcium alone. Calcium is, tends to be kind of a mineral that I, I suppose we could have given some nod of the hat to because uh, it is a uh, common recommendation for people past a certain age to, to take calcium supplements. Uh, there's a mixed bag in terms of uh, results and perhaps maybe even the notion of whether or not uh, it in the long run is the single most beneficial thing. It's not necessarily the calcium that's the issue. It's sort of what you do with it. Uh, there are certain diets that don't get enough calcium, and we need to address that perhaps with supplementation. But uh, the, the best thing I can say is that a, a, a comprehensive approach to structural wellness 
is really a, a combination of things and not just taking a calcium supplement or a couple of tums every morning and thinking that that's going to do it for you. And there's more we have to talk about as well, such as uh, uh, another herb which uh, uh, we've used a lot called Drynaria, which uh, Jen might actually be familiar with from all the uh, traditional Chinese medicine. It comes out of the Shaolin temples where they used to beat on each other and take this stuff after to heal themselves up. Yeah, interestingly, the translation actually means men broken bones. So Drynaria um, actually helps to inhibit the osteoclast function and increase the osteoblast function. So that means that it stops the breakdown of bones and stimulates or induces the building of new bone. Um, particularly interesting about this herb is that it helps to decrease inflammation in the bones. So a lot of times we'll see people with rheumatoid arthritis who are suffering bone loss due to the inflammation. And Drynaria can be particularly helpful in decreasing that inflammation as well as stimulating the regrowth of the bone that's been lost. And it's actually been shown in recent studies to be quite beneficial for actually the bone loss that's associated with periodontal disease. Uh, and typically what's called alveolar bone remodeling, which is the idea that uh, periodontal tissue is constantly trying to uh, stay attached to the underlying bone that's responsible for giving it the uh, anchoring uh, that allows it to align the, the teeth and provide that kind of cushioning. Um, and that actually is one of the first steps in periodontal disease is the destruction of the alveolar bone, uh, which is when they start talking about, oh, I got bone loss in my uh, gum disease and things. And Adrenaria has some interesting uh, uh, possibilities there with regard to people who are chronically prone to uh, periodontal issues, especially if they've been told by their dentist that they're going to need uh, oh, periodontal work or perhaps maybe that the bones are to the point where they're headed towards uh, implants and things like that. And Drynaria we've used for many, many years. I, I, I believe this is really one of the great unsung uh, structural bone health uh, botanicals that are out there in addition to uh, Epimedium as well, which uh, I'm surprised when I talk to colleagues about it how often they just tell you that oh, I heard it was an aphrodisiac and it's like well I don't even know if it's an aphrodisiac but look at the studies that just imply its benefit in bone health and it's like it's, it, it's amazing if you went to, to PubMed there, there are hundreds of articles on this. So let's talk a little bit about collagen and I think that the really the important thing here is um, to understand collagen you have to understand what it's like to be a uh, molecule that likes to be in a basket weave and by that I mean if you think about how baskets are woven you know they kind of like have the strands that go one way and then strands that are perpendicular to those so it produces a kind of a cross-linking type thing and when collagen uh, achieves that basket weave structure it becomes very very strong and very very elastic but when collagen denatures either through uh, excessive amounts of, of antioxidant or reactive oxygen type things or tissue destruction. What happens is instead of having that kind of basket weave look, the strands align kind of longitudinally. They just sort of look like they, they, they're just all lined up as, 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 as sort of in a, in a line. And of course this is very, very weak. So what we really want to do over the course in time to prevent collagen from essentially resulting in the loss of soft tissue uh, elasticity and strength and compressibility is we want to maintain that basket weave structure and there's a variety of actual natural products 
that have been shown to do this by virtue of what uh, we call their polyphenol content. Jen, you want to take us through those? Sure. So one that we use a lot is called horse chestnut, which is particularly helpful for um, decreasing the swelling that occurs after a bone is fractured or there's some sort of sprain or arthritis or a lot of pain that um, occurs due to inflammation. Butcher's broom is also helpful for improving the blood flow that's necessary for the rebuilding of the bone. There's an herb called go-to cola, which kind of combines these things and helps to support the blood flow and also reduces the inflammation. And then there's the famous pycnogenol, which is the maritime pine needle extract, which a lot of people take for a variety of reasons, but it's actually been fairly well shown to have an effect in terms of helping collagen reorient itself to the more strong basket weave cross-linking structure. And it's interesting because you look at these things and you think to yourself that some of the references to these um, botanicals go back to herbal monograms, uh, monographs in the 14th and 15th century. People are talking about the use of these things in sprains and how in Shaolin temples in China they're using drinaria after they do their martial arts training. And the observational basis of these things has just become... Uh, I'm, I'm always so surprised that people can be such empirically sensitive about these things and, and how we risk nowadays with our rush to basically go to the more synthetic of losing this connection to these uh, plants that come from a natural environment, that come through a process of, of evolution that gives them these capabilities. Uh, and I'm just always amazed at these early uh, herbalists and their uh, observational skills at the time were just amazing. So before we close, we'll just give a nod of the hat to the kind of things that are obviously part of an everyday program of wellness that don't have benefits in terms of structural integrity. And of course, the big one there is exercise. Uh, Jen, you want to talk a little bit about the ways basically exercise can influence this? And uh, at that point, then we'll sort of summarize things and uh, we'll wrap up this podcast. Yeah, so anything that increases your... your um weight-bearing or your resistance training is going to help to strengthen your bones. So you don't have to do things that are, you know, super high impact, things like pilometric exercises, which are, you know, like squats and jumps and things like that. Although those are very useful, we oftentimes see people who just aren't quite in a state to be able to do those. So even things like walking or jogging or hiking um, will be really beneficial for supporting your bones. And you can always add in extra weight-bearing, so adding ankle weights or adding hand weights when you're doing these things are just going to give yourself a little bit extra um, outcome from those. It's interesting because especially with regard to resistance, uh, you can start anywhere at in any level as long as you progress. Right. Anything is better than nothing. And it, it's actually the progression that dictates the improvement. So for instance, you can start with a one pound weight, go to a two pound weight, and go to a five-pound weight, and that entire process, people will tell you, oh, that's not doing anything, and yet it actually is, because having started from nothing to go to one pound significant, and having starting at one pound to go to five pounds, so the idea it, with resistance training is the nature of how to do it effectively is to make sure that there's always a degree of progression going on. Yes, the, some of the best ways of being able to do um, bone-building exercises involve things that are going to be... Um, compressive exercises like jumps and things, but many people don't have the joint strength for that. 
uh, although you can essentially work up to it. And yoga has indeed been shown to increase bone density, but only really in people who are regular practitioners. So if you're really a person who likes to take a yoga class once a week, I mean, you're probably not going to get much of a payoff in terms of bone density. But if you are a regular practitioner and you do it long enough, it compares favorably to, in many of the other ways, exercise can induce and, and prevent uh, bone loss and maintain structural integrity. So this concludes this episode of the House Call podcast uh, on uh, structural integrity and, uh, and bone health. I'd like to thank my uh, esteemed colleague, Dr. Jennifer Goto, for coming in and spending some time with us. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to us. Uh, we'll have another episode. Usually these are coming out at the rate of about one every two weeks. You can join the House Call group on Facebook, which uh, is just Adamo House Call. Uh, you can search for that, and there you can interact with people who are discussing elements of this podcast to suggest possible uh, guests and topics that we might have. You can go to dadamo.com, www.dadamo.com for all things blood type diet and related things that I've researched in the course of my own career. And uh, until I see uh, you all again, uh, this is Dr. Peter Diadamo. I'm Dr. Jennifer Goto. And take care, and uh, until next time, be well. <laughs>